chapter 33. And I think I confused some people last week because last week was the climax of the story of the Jacob narrative, but it was not the end of the Jacob narrative. We've got one more that we're going to talk about um, tonight. And then technically his story goes on for a few more chapters, but very quickly it starts focusing more on Joseph and and his journey um, instead of Jacob. But So we're going to finish up Jacob's story, and I think it concludes on a, on a perfect note um, in chapter 33. So... If you look there with me in in chapter 33, verse 1, it says, Then Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them, and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these that are with you? And so he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said to him, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, brother. Let what you have be your own. But Jacob said, No, please, If I now have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. And Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and the herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my own leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. And Esau said, Well, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What is the need? That, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And when he came, uh, when he came from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city, and he bought a piece of land where he had pitched his tent for the hand from the hand of the of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for a chance to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, um, God, as friends and as family, um, and to look into your word. Um, God, as we can 
as, as we complete this, this series that we've been going through in the story of Jacob that we find in the book of Genesis, um, God, we pray that you would continue to keep these things on our hearts, that you would teach us um, the lessons that we have learned um, so far, and you would make those things um, not just information that we have, have, have received, God, but that you would shape our lives through it, um, that we would see um, your goodness and your graciousness, your provision and your providence in all of these things, um, not only in the lives of Jacob um, and those around him, but God, knowing that you are still working in our lives in the same way, um, God, that you have that you have called us, um, that you have brought us um, to where we need to be, and that you are even now working among us. Um, God, let us live lives that represent and show um, the work that you have done in our hearts. God, as we come to this text, um, help us um, to see it rightly. God, open um, our eyes, open our hearts to this text um, so that we can apply it um, and, and live in light of it. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we come um, to the to the very end of, of, of our time with Jacob, and um, there are two different ways that you can kind of see this passage, I think, okay? Really all of it, but especially the last little bit here. You can either see this as a guy who is still trying to work the system, tr- still trying to manipulate circumstances, and still trying to get what he wants or make sure bad things don't happen to him. Or you can see it the way I think is the right way to see it. You can see this as a story of a man whose life has been changed now um, by God, who is a different man because of that thing that we talked about last week, that that wrestling with God that we saw that I believe is a conversion experience. I believe it is the point in which Jacob repents of his sin uh, and he is humbled by God to trust in God and God alone. And so you can really take it one of two ways. If you read some commentators, they think Jacob is still playing the same games in this passage that Jacob's always played. But I don't think that's the case. Um, I'm contending that Jacob is a new man, um, that he has been converted. He has repented. He has trusted in Christ or, or in God. Um, and in doing so, he is now ready to enter the promised land, right, and claim his birthright to fulfill that prophetic blessing that Isaac laid on him when he left to go to um, the land of Haran. And if that's the case, if Jacob is a new man, we would expect to see changes in his life. If the Holy Spirit is working in Jacob and has changed his heart, we would expect to see that play out in Jacob's character. And in fact, I think that's exactly what we see in this text. And so basically what we're going to look at as we close out this series is this idea of characteristics of a new heart, okay, or characteristics of a new man, that we see a unique thing take place in this passage. And that is this, is that Jacob ascends. Remember, we talked about that last week. Um, we come to the, to, to the end of, of the, the wrestling uh, story, and, and God says to Jacob, you have wrestled with God and with man, and yet you have prevailed. And so I'm changing your name now to Israel, right? Jacob has prevailed, okay? He has, he's won. He's ascended. He has come to the point that God has brought him to, and he's, and, and God is lifting him up and preparing him for his, his, uh, coming into the promised land. But ascendancy, victory, prevailing in the Christian life doesn't look the same way it does in the world, 
All right? To win and to prevail and to be the victor in the Christian life is not the same thing as being a victor in, in the normal way the world thinks about it. Okay? And we see that most um, clearly in the life of Christ, but I would argue that we see Jacob typing Christ, right? You see things in Jacob's character that are a, a, a foreshadowing, an image of the kind of life that Christ um, lives and the, and the way Christ came um, to save us. And so that's what we're going to see in this passage. These characteristics of a new man, but, man, but characteristics that are in line with the character of Jesus, okay? And so the first one we see is this, leadership. The first thing we notice is leadership. Verse 33, or verse 1, chapter 33. Jacob lifts up his eyes, and behold, Esau was coming with 400 men. Okay, remember, it's in, at the end of the last story in chapter th- uh, 32, um, it's, he's been wrestling all night, and then as the sun rises um, is, when, is when God leaves him and, and blesses him and gives him a new name. And so it's providentially the case that, that just as the sun is coming up and, and Jacob has finished his struggle um, with God that night, all of a sudden he looks and here comes Esau, right? It's, they're, they're, the, he's right on top of him um, in terms of, of, of Esau's journey. And so then it says in verse 2, he put the servants with their children in front. And then he put Leah with her children next. And then he put Rachel and Joseph last of all. All right. So he divides up his family into these groups as Esau is approaching. Um, And again, if if we are thinking of the old Esau, we might just look at this and go, all right, he's kind of manipulating the odds again. Right. He's thinking, man, I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if he's going to do what um, he's promised. So I'm going to make sure that at least some of my family is saved. So I'm going to put my least favorite wives and kids, which is kind of an awful thing to say anyway, up front. And I'm going to put my favorite wife and, and kid in the back. And then that way, if 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 Esau is full of rage and attacks, then my favorites will get away and, and, and the rest of them won't. Okay. We could look at it that way, but again, I don't, I don't think that's what's going on, um, with, um, with this story. Probably what the case is, is this is just protocol. All right. This is just protocol for the nature of polygamy in, in the old Testament, Middle Eastern world, right? Those, those two women, um, who were his, his, his concubines and their children had a lower social standing in, in the family, right? Leah is a legitimate wife, but she is not his favored wife. And then Rachel is the head of the household, okay? And so the same way that if you went to a, you know, some sort of state dinner or something, you wouldn't meet the president first and then end up meeting, um, the, the, the person who's not that important. It would be the other way around. You would meet the lesser important dignitaries and then the final one would be the most important person. And so Jacob's probably just done that here. He's lined up his family in order of those who are socially the most significant. It's it's probably not. Now, of course, it's obvious there's a little bit of of favoritism here. And we see that all through Jacob's story. There's no hiding the fact that he loves Rachel the best and that he loves Rachel's children the best. Okay. And so that's just something that continues to be the case in his life. But I don't think it's as, as, as maybe ugly as we might think at first sight from this. And so um, Jacob, Jacob does this. He puts these people in order, and as Esau approaches, um, he meets them. But the most important thing is this. It's not the order that Jacob puts his family in. What's most important in the story is that it says Jacob went out front. Right? Jacob goes to the front of the line and stands there to meet Esau coming in first. All right? Godly prevailing, godly victory is marked by out 
front leadership. All right? That's what you see when someone is, is victorious in Christ and living a Christ-like life. You see out-front leadership. Jacob is out-front because he's their representative head, right? He is the head of this household. He is the one who's ultimately responsible if things go south. He's the one who wants to pay the cost first, all right? He doesn't want other people to suffer. He doesn't put his, his lesser important wives out front because he thinks, oh, cool, they'll get attacked first, and then me and Rachel can run off into the sunset. And that's not what he does. He puts himself out front and says, if somebody's going to get attacked, it's going to be me. I'm going to be the first one. I will be the warning death, you could say, and everybody else can make a run for it. All right? That's what Christian leadership looks like. That's what Christian prevailing Christian victory looks like. It looks like out front leadership. There is a history books full of kings and, and presidents and generals and rulers who led their men from behind the lines, right? Um, stories of people who stayed behind in their castles while they sent their constituents out to die in their place. That's not what Christian leadership looks like. Christian leadership leads out the armies, right? It goes first. It goes before, just as Christ did, right? Christ steps forward and said, I will be the one who dies for all of mankind. Not as a king who's come to make you die for me, but I as the king am going to die for you. Leadership's out front, example setting, responsibility taking. That's what it looks like to be victorious in Christ. But not only that, right? Um, there are more things that we see in this passage because that kind of leadership, that out front leadership, um, you could say even if they did that, it could be just depicted as valorous or courageous. But there's something more to it. It's not just courageous. It's humble servanthood. All right, that's the second characteristic. That out front leadership is humble servanthood. Notice how Esau and Jacob uh, encounter each other. It says that the the second half of Verse 3, Jacob came bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But then Esau runs up to meet him and embraces him and falls on his neck and kisses him and they, and they wept. Okay, So this is sort of like, uh, everything's going to be okay. right? We didn't know that until this point. We're still wondering if maybe Jacob's going to end up getting killed by his vengeful older brother. But we notice Jacob's posture going into the meeting. So what does it say? It says he, he bows to the ground seven times as he approaches Esau. Basically what that means is, is that he is treating Esau like a king. All right? Um, Jacob, we know, is God's chosen man. God has already picked him. The land belongs to Jacob. We've spent, you know, six or eight chapters talking about that concept. And it would have been totally within his power for Jacob to step up to Esau and say something like this. Brother, I have returned to claim what is rightfully mine. I'm sure I can count on your loyalty and your obedience as I am the rightful ruler of this place to fulfill the prophecy of God and the blessing of our father that the older you will serve the younger me now bow before your king. Right. He could have done that and he would have been speaking truth. That would have been an accurate way for Jacob to encounter Esau because all of those things would have been right. But that's not what he does. Instead, he bows seven times as he approaches Esau. 
This is courtly deference, right? You see this all through the Middle East in, in history books and different things like that. This is how you approach a person in authority over you. This is how you approach somebody who is significantly over you, like a king. We actually have a, an account in an Egyptian document that talks about um, people approaching Pharaoh and bowing seven times as they approach Pharaoh. Jacob treats Esau like he's a king when, in fact, everything around them actually belongs to Jacob. And not just in Jacob's opinion, but by God's decree. This is exactly what it looks like to be a Christian leader. All right, Humble servanthood to those who are even in your care or beneath you in terms of authority. Jesus talks about that. You see that in the life of Jesus. In, in, in Mark, um, Jesus is talking to the disciples. And there's this place where the two, James and John, come to Jesus. And they say, hey, can we talk to you for a minute? Just come over here to the side. Hey, we want to be like your right-hand and left-hand man when we get to heaven. okay? Or when you bring in your kingdom or whatever. Can we like be the two most important people in your kingdom? And the rest of the disciples are kind of like, what's, what's going on over there? What are they saying? And Jesus says, hey, guys, everybody come here. And he brings them in and he says, I I want to say something to you. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers in the Gentile world, um, that they lord authority over each other, right? That's what they do with authority. They lord it over each other. And their great ones exercise authority over people. But it shall not be that way among you. Whoever would be great among you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to everybody. For even the Son of Man, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Right? So Jesus says, there's no higher authority than me, right? Um, There is no nobility greater than Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is the king of the universe. And yet Jesus says, even when I came to earth, I came as a humble servant to serve you. People who were beneath me in terms of importance and authority and all these things. Yet I I, I came to serve you. The world sees leadership as a chance to bask in glory, right? It sees it as a chance to have other people do for you. Christian leadership does the opposite. It takes on a servant role, all right? But again, we build on that because it's not just leadership. It's not just servanthood. It is sacrificial servanthood, all right? So look at verse 8. So again, we see this picture. Esau says, what do you mean by all this stuff that I came upon as I was approaching? Remember the story from, again, last week. Jacob had sent ahead these huge herds and these huge groups of animals that Esau would come upon in stages. And that every time Esau showed up, he would say, who do all these animals belong to? And the servant was supposed to say, they're Jacob's, but they're a gift for you, Esau. And then he'd come to the next one. Whose are these? Well, they're Jacob's, but they're a gift for you, Esau. And so... Esau asked about that. What's, what's the meaning of all this stuff, all these animals that you're supposedly giving to me, right? And Jacob says, I sent them to find favor in your sight. And Esau says, it, I got enough. I've got everything I need. It's, it's, it's really cool, Esau's character in this place, right? I'm not sure if it's because Esau is a forgiving dude or if it's because he's so worldly that he just forgets about things. I don't know what the case is. Like, he may just kind of be like, Bro, it's fine. I got all kinds of cool stuff now. It happened 20 years ago. No big deal. But it may be because God's been working in Esau too. Esau's not the chosen um, 
vessel of God's blessing and, and inheritance, but God's still blessed Esau and made him into um, a, a forgiving, repentant kind of guy. And so he says, I don't need all this stuff. I've got plenty. I've got everything I need. But then Jacob says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept this present from my hand. For I have seen your face, and it is like seeing the face of God. There's a play off that, right? In the last passage, he saw the face of God. And it's because of seeing the face of God that he can now see Esau's face and not um, be in trouble. And so he sees, he says, it's like seeing the face of God, um, seeing, you, seeing you and the fact that you've accepted me. So please accept my blessing that I've brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough too. All right. And so Jacob says, I have everything I need and I have a God who is going to continue to bless me. Right. I don't have to worry that if I give away this stuff I have, that God's going to leave me high and dry. God has blessed me before. He's going to continue to bless me. I am thankful for the way that you've received me. So please receive these gifts. Okay, there is a generous, sacrificial kind of giving in your life. Godly authority, godly prevailing, godly victory gives. Most authority takes, right? Most authority tries to hoard resources and power for itself. Um, Leadership is meant to attain things, right? We see the worst of that when we look at places like, you know, uh, civil war happening in places in Africa and things like that where there are these warlords, right? Even when relief supplies are brought in, what do they do? The warlords seize all that stuff up and hold on to it and keep it from getting to the people because that's what they want. They want to gain and they want to attain things through their power. Jacob, though, has all he needs and more of that where, where it came from. And so God has blessed him and he wants to share that blessing. And so again, we see that same kind of character in Jesus. In, in Philippians chapter two, which is probably one of the best places in the scripture to go and see the character of Jesus, it says this. Paul is talking and he asks the, the, the believers at Philippi, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us what Christ Jesus was like. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right. So, so the picture that we have there is this. Jesus... Although everything belongs to him, the universe belongs to him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the scriptures say, right? All of this stuff is his, and yet Jesus says, I came to give away. I didn't try to hold on to that stuff and keep it for myself and secure things for me. I came to sacrifice these things for you. And the ultimate sacrifice being not just that he came to earth, not just that he, he um, lived his life of a servant, but that he lived the life of a servant even to the point of death, and even an awful death, death on the cross for us. That's the character of Jesus in his generous sacrifice. Is it, is it a whole lot less of a thing to give away a bunch of camels and goats? Yeah, it is. It's, uh, Jacob is not attaining to the sacrifice of Christ, right? But it's a, pre, it's, it's a picture of it. It's a picture of a changed heart that now wants to give instead of trying to secure for itself. And so he says, God has blessed me, and I have all that I need, and I'm going to give away to you instead. All right? And then all of these things are kind of building um, towards this final concept. And I would say, so we have leadership, 
Um, we have this idea of servanthood. We have this idea of sacrifice. And then, then one more S there. We have this idea of a shepherd's heart. That's the last thing that we see of a changed life, a life that is victorious in Christ. We have a shepherd's heart. So verse 12, then Esau said, let us journey on your way and I will go ahead of you. So basically Esau says, hey man, you're in my country now, right? I know the, know the lay of the land. Why don't I just walk along with you as you progress and I'll kind of take care of you and watch out for you and keep you safe. Verse 13, but Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail. And that the nursing flocks and the herds are a care to me. He cares about those things. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. So let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Okay? So basically what happens is, is Esau says, I'll come along with you and I'll kind of have this, this bodyguard that goes along with you. And again, think of the situation. Jacob's probably still, everything's gone really good so far, but there's still the possibility. He doesn't want to like make Esau mad unnecessarily, right? Esau has graciously offered this thing. Um, you might be scared to re- refuse that offering or whatever, but that's not what, what Jacob does. Jacob says, here's the more important deal. If, if you stay with us, we're going to go super slow. And the reason is because I've got all these flocks and I've got all these little kids um, at this point, And I can't push them hard. If we try to go with the pace that an armed military unit, like the 400 that Jacob brought, if we go with that pace, they're going to die. Like, we, I'm going to wear these, these uh, my kids are, are going to suffer and our flocks are going to die and, and we're going to have a hard time. And you know what? I, I care about them. I'm watching out for them. So we're going to go at our own pace. You guys go ahead. We'll, meet, we'll see you when we get there. Okay? Um, if there's one quality, a positive quality that Jacob has actually shown throughout his story, it is the fact that he is a pretty good shepherd. Uh, we see that over and over again, that he is, he seems to have a, a shepherd's understanding of these things, except now it's even more so. That is shifted not only to his flocks, but to his family, right? He's thinking in terms of shepherding his, his, his life and his family and his children. A new life, the new life of a follower of God should be de- progressively defined by care and concern for the goodwill and the good of other people. All right? More and more, you should find your heart as a believer thinking in terms of what would be best and beneficial for the other people around me. You start basically shepherding those people. Now, you might say, you know, Ash, I'm just a, I'm just a regular person. I don't have um, responsibility for people like in a small group or in leadership. Like, I'm just, I'm just a person. Uh, certainly, shepherd leadership shouldn't be a characteristic that it, you find in everybody. And I'm going to argue that it is. It is something that every single one of us should grow in as we are following Jesus Christ. It's something that our, our thoughts should start gearing to. That we start looking at other people and we go, that person has an issue. I've noticed something that is a, a, um, a weakness or a point of, of, of crisis or a point where that person is in jeopardy. And I care about that. And I want to shepherd and help and do whatever I can to mitigate those circumstances and to encourage that person and bless that person and to bring that person into um, good and blessing. All right. And so, again, that's the character of Christ. Right. We see all these stories in the scriptures where people are pressing in on Jesus. Sometimes he's even sort of tried to get away from the crowds and yet they keep on pressing in. And Jesus always takes time. He always looks out at the flocks and says, 
these are people who need a shepherd, right? Um, he, he has pity on them and literally says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus says, I will be that shepherd. I will step in and guide and help and mend and care for these people. As we ascend, as we are victorious in Christ, that should be the way it works. That our hearts are more and more drawn to ministry and to caring for other people and to serving other people. That's exactly what we see in that same Philippians passage about the character of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right? And so that's the picture that we see of all these things coming together. I love the way Peter talks about it in Second Peter. Um, it's in chapter 1, and he's talking about a growing faith, what a growing faith would look like. Okay, And so he says, to your faith add virtue, to your virtue add knowledge, to your knowledge add self-control, to your self-control add steadfastness, to steadfastness add godliness, to godliness add brotherly affection, to brotherly affection add love. Some people debate about whether or not those things are sequential, but I think it's interesting that the last two are brotherly affection and love, all right? That the early stages of your growth in Christ are about virtue and knowledge, right? You're learning about stuff, and we've all been in that position, right? Like you, you, you become a follower of Christ, and first you want to be virtuous. You want to get rid of the junk that was in your life, that sin. And then you want to start growing in your, your knowledge of who God is and his word and things like that. And as you build on these things, but what's at the end of the line? The end of the line is brotherly affection and love, right? It's caring about people and giving your life for them. And that's what we see in Jacob's life, right? As he comes into this new life um, with God, you notice a shepherd's heart in his character. That's super important for what we're going to be talking about just here in another couple of months, okay? When we get to right after Easter, we're going to talk about um, the qualifications for elders and deacons, okay? And so as we continue to progress and kind of um, get different things going in our church, we're going to start talking about those because hopefully we're going to get to a point where um, the, the church begins to call um, people to be elders, call people to be deacons. But that's why this passage is so key to what we're going to be looking at down the road. This is what leadership looks like in, in a church, all right? If, if you want to be a leader in the church because you're like, I want people to look at me and think I'm fancy and in, in a place of authority and holier than thou and stuff like that, you're in the wrong business. You should go to anywhere, but not the church, okay? Because that's not how it works here. If you want Christian, if you want to be a leader, if you feel God pulling you towards leadership, then it's going to look like we've seen here. It's going to look like servanthood. It's going to look like sacrifice. Um, and it's going to look like having a shepherd's heart for people. And so these, this, this concept is key to what we're going to be talking about just a couple months down the line. And so I hope you kind of hold on to some of those things. So we've seen these characteristics, right? And we'll close on this. And it's a beautiful picture as, as we finish out the story. So Jacob has been given his new life. He's in the promised land with this family that was promised and all these things. And our attention is drawn to a final aspect of his life in this chapter. Look at verse 16. So it says, Esau returned that day, uh, uh, that day on his way to Seir. So Esau goes on ahead, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth. And he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock, or, or fences, you could say, pens, you could say. And therefore, the name of that place is Succoth. Succoth means pens. 
And so Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. This is another move, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. Okay, So notice this. What have we known and, and, and focused on about Jacob, the whole story? Jacob was a fugitive. Jacob was a, a sojourner. Jacob was a, a foreigner in a country that didn't belong to him. Jacob was among people that didn't belong to him. Right? He's always been, the whole time we've seen Jacob, a nomad. Not where he's, he's, he's not where he wants to be. He's not in the promised land. He's not in any of these places. And then as we finish out Jacob's story, how does it end? It says, Jacob built a house. And then he built pens. And pens are, are, are a big deal because you think about it. If you're a nomadic herder, what do you do? You never have fences. You just go where the grass is, right? You just move on to the next place. But what is Jacob doing now? He's saying, I'm going to build a home and I'm going to build a place to keep my animals because this is where we're staying now. This is home. We finally come to the place that God has prepared for us, okay? And that is a beautiful picture that God is calling Jacob home and that Jacob has found his home in the promised land and in the promises of God. But there's one little piece that's even a more beautiful picture than that. Jacob's been a pilgrim for these 20 years. And then it says in verse 19, And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. All right? Two things. Number one, Jacob's never built an altar before. This is the first time that we've seen this in the whole story. He set up a monument for God at Bethel, but he didn't, it wasn't an altar. It wasn't a place of sacrifice. It wasn't a place of worship. It wasn't, it wasn't a place of prayer. It was a memorial, um, but it wasn't the same. Here for the first time, Jacob builds an altar because he has come to a place now where he is worshiping the one true God and praying to the one true God and recognizing the one true God. And then the name that he gives the altar is where it all comes together. He calls the altar El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And this is why that's important, because so far the whole story, what have we seen over and over again? When Jacob talks to God, he says, the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac. He never mentions that it is his God. He always talks to God as if it's a God that he doesn't really know. And then here at last, when he names this altar, he says, the God that I'm making this altar to is the God of Israel. He's my God now. And that is the picture that kind of brings this whole thing to completion, is that Jacob has wrestled with God. He has come through this whole journey, through lots of up and downs, through lots of crazy stuff, through lots of toil and trial and deception and hurt and sin and blessing. And yet in all those things, God has finally brought him to this place that he was always meant for. And now he knows God as his God. And that's the end of the story. And so I pray that this is the case, is that that is functionally the journey that we are all on. Because it is the journey that we're all on. There's a reason why Israel becomes the name of the nation. And it's the reason why we are um, God's people now. And we are basically wrestlers with God too. Because all of us are on this journey. That we continue to wrestle. We continue to struggle. We struggle against God. We struggle against man. And yet, if God is working in us, and if God is calling us to himself, then eventually we find ourselves exactly where God wanted us. 
and that he draws us in and cares for us and loves us. He brings us home, and we have a God who we can worship. Amen? Um, we're going to have a time of, of just kind of quiet prayer and, and reflection, right? We're not going to do um, uh, anything other than that tonight as we close. Um, just go to the Lord in prayer and kind of say, God, solidify these things, right? Let this stuff that we've talked about over the last eight or ten weeks set up like cement in my heart. Like, let me believe these things and, and stake my life on your goodness and your blessing and your providence and your promises, just like Jacob ended up doing, okay? So let's just go to the Lord in prayer and do that right now. Father God, that you would bear with us through all of our struggles, that you would bear with us through all of our foolishness, that you would bear with us through all of the selfishness and sinfulness and goofiness. God, that you would work in us even though we are grasping and usurping and deceiving and all the things that we see in the character of Jacob um, at the beginning of those stories, right? God, that you would still love us is incredible. And we know that the case is is that you do not love us because of us. You love us because of you. Um, you love us because it is in your character and in your nature and in your sovereign, sovereign will um, to love us, God. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a God who has chosen us, God, who continues to work in us despite our frailty and our faults, God, and that you are bringing us into a hope and an infu- a future and an inheritance um, that we cannot even imagine. God, thank you for your goodness and your blessing in our lives. And most of all, thank you that we can call you our God because of the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing our closing hymn with us. <clears throat>